Happy Easter, everyone. This is the Two Minute Podcast Special Edition. Today I would like to talk to you about, well, it's something that has never crossed my mind before. Did the Garden of Eden have anything to do with Easter, with Jesus dying on the cross? This concept really never crossed my mind until just recently. I read several letters that Sarah Lieberman had written to the Zola Levitt website, and she broached this subject about the Garden of Eden and about Jesus. I was so interested that I read those letters over and over and over again and decided that this was something I would like to share with you. The Garden of Eden and Jesus dying on the cross. Well, what was the Garden of Eden? What was it like? Well, was it a real place? What did it look like? You know, what was the temperature there? Just how big was it? What kind of trees and fruit or vegetables? Were there apple trees? Were there pear trees, peach trees, plum trees, mulberry trees? What what was there? What would it be like to be there? Was it kind of like a jungle, you know, with overhanging branches and vines? Was it dark? What was sunlight peering through in, in different spaces amongst the trees? What was it like when God came and walked there in the evening, in the cool of the day? Ah, there's so many things to think about. And then, you know, could we find it today? Are there any biblical clues just where it was? It's fascinating. And I will try my best not to bore you in the next few minutes that we have together. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, it reads as follows. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it's one that flowed around the whole land of Avila. And there was gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelm and Oxstone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And name, the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So here we find that out of the Garden of Eden flowed four rivers. Eden was its source. Well, historically speaking, we think that the Garden of Eden was found someplace in Mesopotamia, which literally means between two rivers. The area that's considered is Iraq and Turkey, Armenia, and the Persian Gulf. Is this where Eden was, or was it totally destroyed? Were the rivers destroyed? Did the flood destroy them? When Noah's boat docked on Mount Ararat, is Eden located somewhere else? Well, in order to understand this, there, well, I'm going to break it into several different concepts, and you might call them keys, keys to understanding where Eden was 
and might it have something to do with Calvary? The first of these concepts is the key to Eden, Eden itself. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden. So here we find and, and determine that the garden is in the east. And the river out of Eden watered the garden. Now this is the river that would break into four other rivers. So the source of the river is Eden. The literal translation of Eden means that it's a place of pleasure. You know, instead of just like north, south, east, or west. But also wrapped up in the word Eden is the root of the word, which means forever or, or eternity. So in its basic form, the Garden of Eden is the garden of pleasure from time to eternity. Human reality compromises two dimensions, the physical and the spiritual. We accept that when a person dies, their spirit leaves the body and drifts upward. If they're a believer, of course, we also know that God told Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate the forbidden fruit. But they didn't die immediately upon eating it. Rather, it was a slow and gradual process of degrading until, over time, they eventually died after living a condemned life on a cursed earth. As the generations follows, the lives of their children and grandchildren became shorter and shorter. If the human race degraded over time and the earth is cursed and it also degrades, well then didn't Eden degrade over time? What was it like in Eden? I wonder if the animals could talk. I, I sort of think they could. Imagine talking to your pet dog and he answers. That would be quite unusual and sort of fun to witness. What was it like to walk with God? Could they see things we can't see? How impaired are we today with 6,000 years of sin? What was their health like? Nobody had ever had measles or mumps or chicken pox or the flu. They had exceptional healthy bodies. But over time, they degraded until they too finally died. And the reason was they did not have access to the tree of life to keep them alive. Perhaps this is why the Bible says, the creation waits and groans with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. The state of separation from God was never God's plan for creation. So if mankind sinned and degraded and things became worse and worse upon the earth, so too would it not be with Eden that was physically planted on earth. I think so. It's time to look at another key.
The next key is the key of the tabernacle. When God told Moses to build the tabernacle, he set out a very detailed instruction about every aspect of the building of this tent of meeting and its elements. Oftentimes, while reading the Torah, that's the first five books of Moses, we glaze over the boring parts, you know, like instructions and measurements. The tabernacle was to face eastward. That's important to remember. In order to enter the temple, you had to travel west. In order to leave the temple, you had to go east. As Adam and Eve left Eden, they walked away from God. East or the eastward direction leads us to Babylon. East leads us to Sodom and Gomorrah. East leads us to Shinar. East leads to the Tower of Babel. And as men walked eastward, they walked farther away from God. The tabernacle's opening always faced to the east. The first temple always faced east. The second temple opening also faced east. What do we learn from this? When leaving Eden, when leaving the tabernacle, when leaving the temple, man had to go in an easterly direction. In order to come back to God, man had to turn west. It was a 180-degree turnaround. It's called repentance. And it's time for another key. This key is the cherubim. The first mention of the cherubim appears in Genesis chapter 3. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, in a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. After Adam and Eve left the garden, God placed two mighty beings called cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden, preventing Adam and Eve's return. Now, why is this? It's because the serpent, Satan himself, had tempted Eve, who in fact sinned and then was the cause of Adam to sin. God loved them so much, he had to remove them from the garden or in this sinful state, they might, they would eat from the tree of life and live forever in their sin and could not be redeemed. After Adam and Eve left the garden, God placed these two mighty angels called cherubim to guard the entrance then to the garden, preventing Adam and Eve's return. The next time the Bible mentions cherubim is in Exodus 25, where Moses received the detailed building instructions for the tabernacle. Two of these cherubim were to sit one on each side of the Ark of the Covenant. However, in chapter 26, God instructed Moses further concerning cherubim. Again, mentioned in Exodus 26, you shall make a veil of purple and blue and scarlet material, 
fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. This veil would separate the holy place from the holy of holies. From the outside to the mercy seat, you were stopped by cherubim that were woven into the veil, just like Adam and Eve were prevented from returning to the Garden of Eden by cherubim standing at the entrance of this garden. As Jesus died on the cross, this veil of partition preventing access to the Holy of Holies was ripped from the top to bottom. This was the only change to occur in the temple, and it symbolized the access for us to God's manifest presence that Jesus purchased with his blood, with his death. The entrance to the garden that the cherubim guarded was now open. And now it's time for another key, the key of the holy hill. Jerusalem is built on the hill of the Lord, sometimes called the mountain of the Lord. David brought the tabernacle to Mount Moriah, which he purchased to set it on what would become the future temple mount. There exists a physical hill of the Lord in Jerusalem to which the tabernacle would travel and find its permanent resting place in the temple, as we said, built by King Solomon. In addition, there is a heavenly mountain that was the place of the meeting of God. However, you may not realize that there was also a mountain in Eden. Hmm, this makes things interesting. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel as he offered a description of Satan, parallel to the one found in Isaiah 14. You, Satan, were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Ezekiel 28. So Satan was in Eden. Satan was in the garden of God. Satan was anointed as a guardian cherub. Imagine that, and think of the wickedness that he caused in this garden. We can conclude from these scriptures that God's sanctuary is in the heavenly Eden. Even when we pray, when we recite the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? On earth as it is in heaven. We have previously established that God planted a garden to the east in Eden, and that it contained a river that flowed to the east and branched into four other rivers. Now we see that Eden also had a mountain or a hill in it. Isaiah 14 describes Satan trying to ascend higher than God's heavenly throne above the stars. 
this chapter uses God's heavenly throne as a mountain, as a meeting, which directly relate to the word tabernacle, or it is called the tent of meeting. Jerusalem is the physical place on earth of God's sanctuary. There is also a garden to the east of Jerusalem, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jerusalem will, in the future, also have a river that flows downward and eastward from it. It's amazing. The New Testament describes the new Jerusalem descending down to earth from heaven in Revelation 21. If this theory is correct, then that event will culminate in the reunification of heaven and earth as the heavenly Eden, or we might say the new Jerusalem, reunites once again with the earthly Eden located in Jerusalem. This separation that was caused by man's sin will finally and fully be overcome. The result of Jesus' victory will be manifest physically and completely on earth as Jesus rules as king forever and forever. This is what John described in his vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Revelation 21. And now we'll move to the key of the two trees. Eden had many trees. Mankind could eat from them all, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Cherubim guarded the entrance when they listened to the serpent and were removed from this garden. Can mankind again eat from the tree of life? Yes, he can. In Revelation chapter 2, it states, To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, friends, you see, the Bible starts in Genesis with the tree of life. And the book ends in the book of Revelation also with mankind eating from the tree of life. It's fantastic. The tree is mentioned in context with the city twice again. In Revelation 22:14, it states, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And in Revelation 22, 19, it states, And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of this prophecy, or what we call the book of Revelation, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the scroll. Here then is the question. Are the garden and the city of Jerusalem the same place? I think they are, and it's time to move on to another key. The key of the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14 states, 
On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that the one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. This mount is east of Jerusalem. Jesus spent much time there in this mountain on the Mount of Olives, teaching his disciples. This is where there is a garden nearby, the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of this mountain. Also note this. There are four roads that exit Jerusalem. But if you figured out by now, the one we're interested in is the east one, the one that leads to Jericho. On this road lives Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This east road is also where Jesus returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives riding on a donkey, a fulfilling prophecy that he truly is the Messiah. Here's the question. Was the redemption of mankind to occur on this very same road east of Eden and to the very same mountain? The Mount of Olives has the highest elevation in the area, rising above Jerusalem and the Temple Mount itself. The Bible tells us that when Jesus was crucified, his disciples could watch it from a distance. It states that in Luke chapter 23. The Romans crucified people, as was their habit, along major roads, so that everyone who traveled thereby, as many as possible, could see people crucified and asking the question, why? Why were they on the cross? The Mount of Olives is the only location that would make this possible and is outside the city itself, Hebrews chapter 13. Additionally, Jesus was crucified in a place with a garden, which also fits the description of the Mount of Olives. This is getting really interesting, isn't it? The New Testament offers three descriptions of the crucifixion. They are found in Matthew 27, Mark chapter 15, and Luke 23. These descriptions relate to four supernatural events that occurred at the time of Jesus' death that caused the Roman centurion to believe in God. Here are the four. One. The sky went completely dark in the middle of the day. Two, Jesus cried out as he died, committing his spirit to God. It is finished. Three, an earthquake released many dead from their tombs. Four, the veil in the tabernacle was torn from top to bottom. Everyone around Jerusalem saw the darkness, and everyone felt the earthquake. Everyone heard Jesus cry out to his Father in heaven, 
who had forsaken him because of the sin of mankind that he was now bearing. And how, according to Matthew, did the centurion see the torn veil? If the Roman soldier who was standing next to the cross saw the veil torn in two, the only place that this could have happened was on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. Let's review. We have already learned that the temple opening faced eastward. Therefore, the Holy of Holies was on the west side of the building. The Temple Mount rises 2,427 feet above sea level. The Mount of Olives is taller, standing at 2,709 feet above sea level, 282 feet higher. This meant that if you were standing higher than approximately 2,460 feet on the Mount of Olives, directly opposite the temple. Now remember, you have to be higher than this. You would be able to see the veil in the sanctuary because during the feast, the second veil that sealed off the holy place was open so that people could see into the temple. And what could they see? They could see the curtain covering the Holy of Holies, guarding this holy place, this Holy of Holies, were the cherubim sewn into this veil. Wow! It's time for another key. Numbers 19 states and records about the key of sacrifice. It's an unusual command. The sacrifice of a red heifer without defect or blemish and that has never been under a yoke. Well, these are the qualifications. This is what was stipulated in Numbers 19. Unlike other sacrifices, the red heifer is to be sacrificed, get this, outside the camp and only by the high priest. We also know the location of this sacrifice by the next instruction. Then... Eliezer the priest is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of the meeting. With the temple built, there was only one place where the high priest could sacrifice the red heifer and also be able to see the opening of the temple. You guessed it, the Mount of Olives. The high priest was to sprinkle the blood toward the entrance of the temple. Being outside the camp, the blood from the priest's finger wouldn't physically reach the temple. But the purpose of this particular sacrifice wasn't to reach the temple, but to cleanse the people from death. It shows the power of this blood and sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus could see all of this, and also could the Roman centurion. 
the heifer's blood didn't touch the tabernacle physically, yet it cleansed it, and it did so for many years. Likewise, Jesus' blood cleanses us and is available to all generations, even to the end of days. Did not the Roman centurion see Jesus give up his spirit? Could he not see this veil with a cherubim on it, which guarded the Holy of Holies, split in two, torn from top to bottom? God did that tearing, not man. It's just so amazing that this prophecy was fulfilled literally. It's time for the last key, the key of the two women. The red heifer sacrifice cleansed man from death, and Jesus' sacrifice defeated death, and it's cursed forever. Well, now that we know that, now that we've seen that, the first person Jesus met after his resurrection was a woman. Because all the 12 disciples were men, wouldn't you reason that, well, shouldn't he meet them first? They would be the ones that he should go tell and to spread the good news that death was defeated. But God didn't want it to be done that way. He had a different manner, a different choice. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent, the snake, spoke to Eve, a woman and lured her away from God's promises. This encounter changed everything. Eve listened to the serpent and brought the fruit of death to Adam. And when they ate the fruit, it opened the door to sin in their lives. And in all of mankind, as well as the rest of God's creation, they were removed from the Garden of Eden to the east because of their sin. They tried to return, but they couldn't because the cherubim prevented them from getting in. They could not eat from the tree of life. And as mankind, de they digressed, they, they decayed, they got older, they became sick, so did this garden digress, and was it no longer able to be seen? God lifted it from the earth to return to heaven. So after Jesus' crucifixion, outside of Jerusalem, he was buried in a tomb. He was buried in a garden, and three days later he arose victorious. Again, we find a woman in the garden. This time, we know her exact location. She is just outside of Jerusalem. In John chapter 20, Jesus meets her in the garden. Again, the woman listens, but this time to God and not to the serpent and tells the men the good news that Jesus is resurrected. Two women in two gardens. One's action begins the fall of man, 
and one carries the most incredible message of all, the restoration and the full redemption of mankind. I believe that these two encounters occurred in the exact same location. Outside of Jerusalem, east of Eden, on the Mount of Olives, and in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is coming back. The New Jerusalem is coming back. The Garden of Eden is coming back. And Jesus will set up his kingdom, and he will reign forever and forever, for there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Hallelujah. Well, that's a two-minute podcast special edition from the Garden of Eden to Calvary. Happy Easter. I am Michael Foskey.